Well, good morning. Some of you are awake, but that's okay. Expectations. Expectations are kind of a funny thing in our lives. In fact, I think it's one of those things that drives many times how we feel. If things go according to our expectations, we feel good. If, feel, if things don't go according to our expectations, we can be either unhappy or angry. Um, so I'm wondering, I think sometimes we forget the Christian life. The life that Jesus has called us to is not really and never was a life of comfort and ease. Um, well, yes, we're always blessed, and I've been so blessed by God, and he's preserved me from a lot of trouble in life, and I can't complain, but I think our expectations are different. Um, we often think it's strange, or not even right, that someone who lives a godly, loving, obedient life should be met with oppression and hatred. Does it seem right? Jesus' warning is clear, though, in our passage today, and Scripture consistently tells us that those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer. Now, we don't like that word. And we know that our ultimate home is in heaven, where we will have joy and peace and comfort and freedom from tears and pain, and it will be forever. And sometimes in our life, as we consider the trials and the hurts and the pains and the aches of our lives, we're already tired of it. And we get homesick, don't we? A little homesick to go home. My mom, um, as she was nearing the end of her life, she was uh, dying of cancer. And, but she was always smiling. She knew Jesus. And um, she consistently would say things like this. She'd wake up in the morning and she'd say, I'm so ready to go home. And the nurse would say, well, what apartment do you live in? And then she goes, oh, no, 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 no. Heaven, heaven, I am ready to go home. And they go, huh? Okay, they, they didn't really understand this concept of going home to be heaven. But I think for us, what should we expect when we put faith in Jesus Christ? Um, as we live as strangers and aliens in this present world, what did you expect? Did you expect that life would get better? That the pain would go away? That our struggles would be ended? Um, I think some of us think that putting faith in Christ is like jumping on an elegant cruise ship where now life will be comfortable and easy and we'll have buffets to eat whatever we want and it'll all be provided for us. But what we really find out is we get, we're getting on a warship and God is equipping us for battle as soldiers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to be battling for the souls of men and women and boys and girls from every tongue, tribe, and race that they might know Jesus Christ and this war will go on until we're done or called home. Now, this war and the soldiers, I think Jesus is preparing his men. And let's turn in our Bibles today to John chapter 15, verses 18 through chapter 16, verse 4. Now, for those that don't have theirs, they can follow along on the screen behind me, but let's just read together. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. 
If you were of this world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, and because of this the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. But they have done this to fulfill what the word that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. And you will testify also, because you have been with me from the beginning. These things I have spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. These things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. But these things I have spoken to you so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. These things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. And this is the word of the Lord. Well, join me as we kind of get into this passage on what's going on again. Uh, Jesus has just finished uh, his talking with his disciples and encouraging them in the upper room. He's finished washing their feet. They've been eating a Passover meal together. Judas has gotten up and left to betray him. And now he's called the men and they're on a walk to the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, historians have estimated this is a mile, mile and a half walk. So maybe it's a 30 minute walk. But 30 minutes, think of it. Time is short. Jesus' words becoming ever more precious. In our current chapter, Jesus has just shared with the men three key messages. In verses 1 through 11, he shared that our relationship to God should be like that of a branch to a vine. We need to abide in Christ. All we would need would come from that vine. Anything that would needed in life would come from that vine. But if we were not connected, we would wither and die. He said, without attachment to me, Jesus said, you can do very little. No, nothing. Nothing. In verses 12 to 17, he changes from our relationship to God through the vine to our relationship to one another. And he says the relationship you should have one to another is one of love. It should be characterized by love. And his command was this, love one another as I have loved you. And how was that? Sacrificially. Without merit on our own. Unconditional. Is that how we love one another? Even today, if I stopped right here and didn't read the rest of this, is that how we love one another? I, I have to get challenged every day because I'm not sure my love is so unconditional and sacrificial. I can say the words, but we need to truly love. So in today's passage, Jesus takes a turn 
And actually, this is the most solemn and the most, uh, maybe least consoling part of his words to his disciples, but they're real. And he tells them what they can expect, not from their relationship to God or their relationship to one another, but their relationship to the world in which we live. And he says, it's not going to be good. And he says, the world's hate and persecution once Jesus leaves is not going to be on him anymore. It's going to be on us. And he tells them in John 16, chapter, verse 1, These things I have spoken to you, that you may be kept from stumbling. See, Jesus, he needed to make sure they were prepared. They needed to know, is this what following Messiah is like? Uh, we get hated? We get persecuted? I thought we were following the king, the leader, the guy that's in charge. I didn't expect to get beat up out of this thing. But Jesus is saying, no, I want you to understand the truth because I do not want you to lose faith. That when it does happen to you, you could don't say, wow, something weird's happened. No, this is exactly what I told you would happen. So hang in there. So beginning in verse 18, we see Jesus say this. If the world hates you, and please don't read that, it possibly could. If the world hates you, and it does, remember that it hated me first. Now, he makes the certainty of this hatred even more clear as he goes into verse 17. And he tells them, Because I chose you out of the world, and this is why the world hates you. And the world, it doesn't say the world might hate you, it does hate you. And, and the word hate here is not our typical word in America for hate. We, we like our use of love. I love peanut butter. I love jam. I love pie. Okay, that's not the way love is working in the Bible for agape, and neither is hate. Because we might say, I hate peanut butter, I hate mushrooms, which I do. Um, and then also, there's, I hate traffic. Well, we generally don't come out with our swords and beat up the jars of peanut butter in the store if we hate peanut butter, right? But Jesus says, this is not going to be an emotional hate. This is going to be a hate not limited by emotions, but one that drives hostile actions. It's going to make people persecute, make people throw out, people outcast, people kill. And he confirms this in verse 20. And he says, if they persecuted me, not an emotion, this is an action, they will also persecute you. So are we ready? Um, because we associated ourselves with Jesus, and Jesus is telling us, whoever associates themselves with me is going to get the same treatment I did. And all the persecution and hate that used to come my way is going to come your way. And you know, the world still hates Jesus and those who follow him. So this morning I want to cover a couple things, three things. One, who is it that hates us? Two, why do they hate us? And three, what's our response to this Jesus-hating world? Well, the word world here, because Jesus in verse 1 says the world hates you, right? Um, a lot of us think that the world is people, but the way it's used here, it's not a planet, it's not a globe, it's not, it's not dirt. He's not talking about the world hates you. He's talking about a world system. Okay, the New Testament, when it speaks of the world and the love of the world, it's a world system. Now, according to Kenneth Wiest, he defines the world to mean this. 
a well-organized system that stands in opposition to God, designed to capture the heart of man away from a personal relationship to God through its pleasures, its pursuits, its philosophies, its priorities, and its purposes. I mean, it doesn't take a genius in this room to understand that the world's pleasures are not God's pleasures. Or that the pursuits that the world pursues are not what God would have us pursue. Or philosophies, the way we think, the way we act, what we trust in, our priorities. The world's priorities are not God's priorities. We really don't have to work a lot of work hard to figure that out. But this well-ordered and organized system does have a leader. And that leader is told to us who it was in the scriptures. And it says this in Ephesians 2.1. And you were dead in your offenses and sins in which you previously walked according to the course of this world. According to the prince of the power of the air. Now some of us not know who the prince of the power of the air is. But in 1 John 5 we get a little closer clue. We know that we are of God. And the whole world, the whole world system lies in the power or in the lap of the evil one. Aha, we have a clue. This is Satan. The ruler of our world system, the one that hates us is Satan. Now, he operates this system. He runs this system. This is according to his design. And his system is opposed to God and everything that God loves or values. It's like a pastor shared with me once that the world that we see, all the actions it takes, all the movements, all the behaviors, all the intentions, are like a glove, and Satan is the hand inside the glove. Satan is manipulating this world like it's toy, and he is our enemy. So, and he's trying to achieve his ends. So what are his ends? Well, in Isaiah chapter 14, we hear his first end. His first end was, you know what, I think I'll rise up and ascend and be like the Most High. I want to be God. I like his position. You know, God responded pretty quickly. That position's filled. You can't have it. And he thrust him out of heaven. Ever since that moment, he has been angry at God. He hates God, and he hates everything that God stands for. And so what does he do? He tries to destroy not just this world, but what is God's number one design project? What is created in his image? Man. We have become the bullseye. And what did he do right in the garden, right from the start? He traps man in sin, and he puts his arms, and man hands over the keys to the world to Satan. And we all get started off being in the kingdom of darkness, of, our, of the leader of this rebellion, Satan. Now, interesting that we find ourselves that who hates us is Satan and this world system. Now, he uses tools to accomplish his purposes, correct? When Jesus was talking to Peter in the upper room and he says, who do you think I am? And, and he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, which is great. And he said, well, I'm going to the cross. No, you can't do that. Get thee behind me, Satan. He didn't say get thee behind me, Peter. Satan was the, was the manipulator of the action. So the cause of these things are not our neighbors. 
So who, do, who hates us? It's not the people that carry out Satan's plans in our life, the ones that actually are demonstrating this hate, this persecution, the people that get mad at you for witnessing about Jesus. They're not the enemy here. The ones that are driving the hatred is Satan and his world system. So what are we supposed to do? Well, it says that the people are the victims in this process. So what are we supposed to do with the people? Well, Jesus and the Bible tell us that people are not the enemy. Satan is the enemy. What do we do with people? For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Our, your struggle is not with your neighbor. It's not with your boss. It's not with your coworker. They're not the enemy. They're the victim of Satan's world scheme. They need good news. They need to hear about Jesus. That's why Jesus tells us in Matthew 5, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may prove yourselves to be son of your Father who is in heaven. See, Jesus understood that people aren't the problem. They're the tools that are in the glove that Satan is manipulating. And as the victims, we have an obligation to pray for those who persecute us and love our enemies. So what kind of things will Satan do to actually get his way in our world today? What does he do? What are his, some of his schemes? Well, we do know that he blinds the eyes of those that can't see Jesus, right? And there's no way they can pull the blinder off unless God removes it. So we know he does that. But he's a liar and a father of lies. Did you know Jesus said that in John 8? That all lies are sourced in Satan. They start right there. He started telling them in the garden. He is the father of all lies. What is he also? He said he's a murderer. He's been a murderer and a destroyer from the beginning. So now, what are his tools? Well, what kind of lies do you hear today that you may not be catching? Or maybe you do catch. How about truth is relative? No one could really know absolute truth. There isn't such a thing. It's right here. This is absolute truth. You hold it in your hands if you have a Bible or a phone app that has your Bible in it. That's absolute truth. This is something that will never be proven false. Any, any article, any newspaper, any news media outlet, any book, anything I'm saying could potentially be proven false. But this will never be proven false. Do you get it? We're holding something that is so unique in this universe. And we've got to treasure that. But how about another lie? Uh, many roads lead to God. we just got to be sincere. Anybody heard that? Um, how about, uh, hey, just do what makes you happy because it's all about you and there really aren't any rules. Really? Um, how about don't be good, just look good. I know a lot of people that... Anyway, um, there's no such thing as male or female. You are what you think you are. Did anybody go to biology class? That cannot be true. Um, how about sex does not need to wait till marriage? I mean, how do you know if you're right for each other unless you test drive this relationship? I hear that all the time. A lie. A lie. How about contentment can only be had with acquiring one more thing. If I only had white teeth, 
I only was thinner, if I only had clearer skin, if I only had that car or that job, then I would be happy. Really? There's only one source of contentment in this universe and it's not stuff. It's God. See, Satan has been lying to us through our culture for a long time. And he's also a murderer. And you've got to remember this. He wants to kill and destroy anything precious to us or to God. Our relationships, our peace, our families, our unity, our church, our trust in God, even our very lives. If Satan could, he would take them. He would eliminate every believer from the planet. Why can't he? God says, no, I will be a shield round about you and no one can touch you unless I say so. That is why we are alive today, not because of our great strength or ability to outwit Satan. See, Satan, God gave us tools. He said, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Why is that? Because we have Jesus as our defender. Not because we're strong. We don't have a chance against a being like Satan in our own horsepower. But with God, we can tell him to flee. Well, the enemy we face every day is in this world. But God called us out of this world. It says in verse 19 that I took you, I called you, I chose you out of this world. That's ecclesia, that's church. That's where we get our word church from the Greek. It means the called out ones. So you guys have all been called out who know Jesus. Now, unless I'm mistaken, you're still in the world though. So you're called out of the world, but you still live on planet Earth, right? So that means what Jesus said in John chapter 17. He says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I am not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them away from the evil one. See, Jesus reinforces this. We are left here. We have been moved from Satan's kingdom of darkness into God's kingdom of glorious light. Right? We're in a new kingdom. We serve a new king. We have new rules in this kingdom. We live according to the new rules, not against the old rules. And what he said was, but I'm going to leave you on earth in the middle of this world system so you will be in the world, but not of the world. What that just means is we're not going to be taking orders from the world system anymore. We're taking orders from heaven. See, all of us still have an address on planet Earth, I think. Uh, I don't think anybody here lives on another planet. But we live li lives as citizens of heaven, and we're supposed to stand out. We're supposed to live differently. We're supposed to be unique in this planet. God called us out of this planet to live differently. There was an article that hit home to me that it was in a book that uh, Pastor Howard had given to me, Philip Howard. And I read that and I got to this page and I had to read it to you. The book's called Courage to be Protestant and it's by a man named David Wells. In the world, it's all about self-fulfillment. It's not about self-sacrifice or self-discipline self-restraint or self-abasement in which Christianity is all about. But these words, in fact, are obscenities in our world today. Indeed, they may be the only obscenities the world has. 
The self-movement is all about feeling good about ourselves, not about being good. It's therapeutic, not moral. So is it a great surprise to learn that then the born-again experience that happens with this thinking makes virtually more, no moral difference in people's lives? This, in fact, is one of the great tragedies of our time, that evangelicals have lost their spiritual status as outsiders to the culture. Those who march to a different drummer and have the capacity to think about their world in ways that are completely different from what is taken as normal in it. So many consequences would derive from all this, but I'm going to pursue one, and that is the matter of being salt and light in our culture. I think in the church, if we Christians lose our distinctiveness or lose our identity and we try to blend in with the culture, we try to camouflage ourselves a little bit so people aren't so offended, we lose the impact that God intended us for, for us to have. The church was meant to influence the world, not the world influence the church. And if we don't do this, what's going to happen is we're going to be like some churches that are slowly bending to the pressures of the world's and our culture's expectations. It should not be so. It cannot be so in God's church. Instead, it seems like the church, instead of floating along like a ship, on top of troubled waters of this culture delivering the message of good news. We're becoming a boat that's becoming swamped by the waters of this world and slowly this boat will become ineffective and sink if it's not stopped. We cannot be like the world and have effectiveness. We must love the world. We must not try to be oddballs to the world but we got to be distinct. We have to be different. So what I think now is we realize that this world system that hates us has a leader. And that leader we learned was Satan. And according to 1 Peter 5, he's not neutral. He's not just running this government scene behind the world and just not really caring. According to 1 Peter 5, it says, Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. You and I got to remain vigilant. Stay alert. Understand that this enemy of ours is just waiting to pick us off. He's lying in the tall grass just outside the herd waiting for us to not abide in the vine, not to be controlled by the Holy Spirit, not to continue to meet one with another, not to... Uh, be fellowshipping one with another and obeying his word and all of a sudden we're kind of on the edge of the herd. Has anybody watched like the animal channel, animal planet? Which animals get picked off by the predators? The ones on the edge. The ones that are just kind of left behind and by themselves. This is what happens to us if we are not alert and vigilant. Satan is just waiting to pick one of us off, including me. And if we're not vigilant, we will be. Now, that doesn't mean you're eternally lost. That just means you're out of the game. So, let me read a verse. Romans 12, 2. Many of you know it. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, 
so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. As I read this, according to Romans 12, 2, if you and I are not purposefully, deliberately, and consciously trying to transform our minds by God's word, we will be being conformed to this world. We will start thinking like this world. We will start acting like this world. There is no neutral position. You can't sit and idle and, well, I'm not really following the world, but I'm not really having my mind transformed. There is no middle position. You're either going one way or the other. And as I, my mom used to tell me all the time, son, if, if you want to go hang out with the world and you want to try to be more friendly with the world, just understand you're like a white glove. And if a white glove hangs out in a mud puddle, the mud puddle doesn't get glovey. The glove gets muddy. We got to remember, when we try to be friends with the world, there is no compromise. There is no compromise. You either get muddy like that glove, or you'll stay apart and stay pure like God would want us. See now, but the thing that's important here is how we will live, will look more like the world, will follow its priorities, will follow how it thinks, its wisdom, and will use its methods. Have you not seen that we have used his methods, the world's methods and a lot of stuff? And even in church it can creep in, can't it? The world's methods of how you get a crowd. The world's methods of how you look good. The world's methods of how you get ahead. The world's methods of how you raise money. We, I have heard, when I used to be executive pastor, I heard so many stories about how we would do much better raising our funds if we would do more like the world does to raise that money. That's not how we raise money in a church. This is God's precious people who he died and bled for giving back to God. I'm not getting in the middle of that with some hype. That is not what we do. The world's methods are not the church's methods. And it says here in 1st 2nd Corinthians 10, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not wage battle according to the flesh, but the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. You see, the tools God wants us to use and has given us are spiritual tools. They're not the earth's tools and the earth's wisdom. And they will win. His tools are effective. Earthly tools in the church are not. Well, He's reminding us to be vigilant and prepared because the world is a formidable enemy and he try, he's hating us. He wants to do everything to stop us. You've got to understand that. Satan wants to stop us. So why does the world hate us? Well, in verse 18, Jesus starts off and tells us why. Well, it hated me first. Why would the world, why would Satan hate Jesus? You ever thought about that? This is the perfect son of God. Why would you hate him? Because remember who the enemy is. The enemy is Satan. Satan hates God. Jesus is God. Therefore, I hate Jesus. But there's another reason. Jesus came on a mission to this planet. I came to rescue those that are in the kingdom of darkness and pull them out and put them in my kingdom of glorious light. I came to rescue them from their sin and from their rebellion. Satan, you've had them long enough. I'm taking them back. That's why Jesus came. And Satan hates that. And guess what? Anybody who wants to carry on that legacy and that mission of Christ, he hates as well. 
That's why he says, you know, you too. Not because you dislike my name, but because you have my mission. Now, but it is partly his name. Because let's look at verse 21. It's really fascinating to me. In verse 21, it says, But all these things, the persecution, the hatred, the, the ill treatment, they will do to you is for my name's sake. Have you not noticed that there's a lot of God talk that can go along in our world? We, our legislators would say, well, God bless America. And God, we, we thank God. Let's ask, let's ask God to bless this situation or change this place. Anybody at work, at government, God can be mentioned at will. So we're not an anti-religious country. In fact, you could talk about Buddha. You could talk about anything at the workplace, and it seems to be okay. But you mention Jesus, and the gloves come off. Why? Because the world hates him with a passion. And anybody that would bring that name up with favor, they are against. So we should not expect anything different. They hate the name of Jesus. Well, there's also one other reason. Because Jesus said in John chapter 3, I am the light of the world. And the world loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. So what do we want to do as normal worldly people when somebody shines a light on my crime? Shut off the light. Kill it. Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. And what did they do? They killed him. We got to shut off this light because it makes us look bad. It reveals our sin. It, it reveals who we really are. Well, then what did Jesus tell us in Matthew chapter 5? You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor people light a lamp and put it under a bushel. You understand, we are now Jesus' light bearers. If you go into a situation, you carry the light of Jesus that illumines on a dark world that their deeds are evil. We're not going to be welcome at most parties. You're going to be the party pooper, right? Because when you show up, wait a minute, I can't have fun doing my sin when you're standing next to me. I, I don't know how many people swearing a blue streak before I walk up. I walk up, they know I'm a pastor, and they go, oh, oh sorry, sorry. <laughs> what? That's just how you talk. Well, I got, I got. They, they know it's wrong, but they're not called into question until the light shows up. So now, what is this? We are the light, and we're going to make the world uncomfortable. You just can't party like you used to party and be light. The last thing that I thought was pretty interesting, and it was terrible, actually. In John 16, 2, Jesus said this, that it's going to get so bad that people who kill saints will think they're doing God a service. In the name of religion, in the name of worshiping you, God, I'm obedient to you. I am serving you, and I'm going to kill them. Murder is great in your world because I'm getting rid of them. Do you think that happens much in America? I don't think so. Does it happen in other places of the world? All the time. I mean, I don't know if you were one of the people who unfortunately saw these YouTube videos probably about eight years ago when they were beheading Christians by ISIS and they had it on the video. 
Did I need to see that? No, I sure didn't. But it was true. People who had claimed the name of Christ were being murdered because of religion. Now, we know that all the disciples realized that this was true except for John. All the disciples but one were martyred. Jesus told them it's going to happen, and it did. And church historians said there's probably, I don't know, as much as 100 million people, and they're just guessing, Christians who have died because they said, I own the name of Jesus. Now, it doesn't happen much in America, so we kind of seem immune to that. See, because for 250 years in America, we've been on this little island of refuge that God has protected from most religious oppression. What happens if that protection starts fading? Does anybody see it already fading? I think it is. So I, I wonder, if God allows the freedoms in this country to continue to erode, will American believers panic? Will you panic? Will I panic? Will we bail? Because it gets tough? It gets dangerous? See, no one comes in our sanctuary with guns and threatens to arrest us or kill us if we worship and name the name of Christ. Yet. But they could. Would we still come? I don't know. I hope our freedoms don't get eroded, but I more greatly hope that we would stand firm and steadfast in service and loyalty to our Lord Jesus, if it did. So what does God expect of us, and what does he want our response to be to this hate? We know that there's a world system run by Satan that hates us and wants to kill us and destroy us. But we really know why, because Jesus is the rescuer, and he hates Jesus and that mission. And now, what does he want us to do? What does Jesus want us to do? Verse 26 and 27, let me read it for you. He says this. When the Helper comes, the Holy Spirit, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about Noah and the flood. He will testify about Daniel in the lion's den. He will test about what? About me. Jesus says his testimony is specifically about Jesus. And you also will testify of me because you have been with me from the beginning. Is it clear what our call is? Our call is simple. To a Jesus-hating world. Understand they hate you, but they're not the enemy. You need to tell them about Jesus. That's where the Holy Spirit's power was. Jesus said, I gave you the helper so he would help you testify about why there's evil in the world. No. About, you know, why does God let good, bad things happen to good people? No. He gave us power to witness about Jesus, to tell them about the burial, the death, the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he gave us power to do. That's what this is all about. He said, look, you've been with me but you've got to wait until Jerusalem until you get power. And when you get power, you'll have the ability to testify about me. That's what our mission is here. We're to testify about Jesus. And if you feel like I don't have much boldness, I get in these conversations, I want to invite them to church, and you know, and there's not, that's not what the Holy Spirit's power is for. How about talking about Jesus and why his salvation is so wonderful? 
and you'll have power like you don't know. Because that's why the Holy Spirit was sent. To give us power to tell others about Jesus. That's the response of a, of a world to a hating world. Jesus' response to a sinful world was to come. Our response to a hating world is to tell them about Jesus. That's what it's about. Well, I think there's something here too. I want to talk a little bit about being friends and being Jesus' friend. From today's passage, Jesus made it very clear that following him is not a path to easiness, pain-freeness, and comfort. That's not what he told them. He said, expect to be hated and persecuted and maybe even killed. So you might say from a human perspective, Jesus is a terrible recruiter. Join me and people will hate you. Join me, follow me, and people will persecute you and maybe they'll even kill you. Want to sign up? Well, Jesus wasn't trying to recruit. He was just being honest. He's saying, the things I have to offer you, the glorious kingdom of God that has now been offered you through forgiveness in me, comes at a price. And it's really incredible that we don't really understand sometimes that that price is there. And we get either amazed by it, we get incredulous, we think that's not fair, but that's what Jesus said from the beginning. In fact, he gave us more wonderful news in this recruiting strategy. He said in Luke chapter 12, verses 51, Do you suppose that I came to grant peace on the earth? I tell you no, but rather division. For from now on, five members in one household will be divided three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother. Everybody in the house is fractured because of the name of Jesus. That's a price that's pretty high, isn't it? And Jesus said, look, we might not see this in America today, but do you think it's happening around the world? Absolutely. Our, our missionary, Sequant Batia from India, shared his story when he was 18 years old and went home to tell his parents that he had put faith in Jesus Christ. His father met him at the door with a gun and said, you are dead to me and if you do not leave, I will shoot you myself. Wow. Wow. I don't think, when I went to, accepted Christ at a Billy Graham uh, convention, my, my uh, crusade, my, my parents kind of pushed me down the stairs to go. It wasn't the, I had to go home and tell them and face opposition. What would I have done? Some of you have had to do that, face opposition at home, when you told them you now follow Jesus. It wasn't comfortable. It wasn't easy. But it's worth it. Well, there's another thing here. Jesus said it was even more good news for those that follow him. He says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father, mother, wife, children, brothers, and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross, meaning they're prepared to die, and sacrifice themselves to put him one, and follow me, they cannot be my disciple. That doesn't mean they won't be a very good one. Cannot means cannot. Right? 
And hate doesn't mean hate your mom and hate your dad. This means if you're not putting me so much in first place that it seems like your love for your parents is a hate, then you're not loving me enough. And if you're not willing to do what I say and sacrifice for me, then you're not my disciple. He, he doesn't know how to get a good crowd, I don't think. Jesus, in the passage we studied last week, and Pastor Matthew shared that with us, tells the fol his followers that he was their friend. He said, no, I'm not, you're not just acquaintances, you're not my servants, you're not my slaves, you're my friends. And those friends, within two hours, he knew was going to abandon him. Now one of those friends, Peter, stood tall and said, hey, I'm not like those, I will die for you. And Jesus told him what? Before the sun comes up tomorrow, you will deny, deny me three times. This is one of the most poignant things in Scripture to me as I read it. Because the third time in the, in the, in the version of Luke, his telling of the story, you could see it. Peter was at a courtyard with a fire warming himself. Jesus was being surrounded by the members of the Sanhedrin more inside of the house. But he could see Jesus from where he was. And we read the story here as Peter denied him for the third time. And Peter replied to the comment, don't you know Jesus? Aren't you with him? Man, I don't know what you're talking about. And just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Peter remembered the word of the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. I don't know how many times, I don't know what that look was like. I don't know if it was a loving look, a disappointed look, a hurt look. But I know I've deserved the same look from Jesus when I've gone mute. When people ask me, do you own this Jesus? Or can you tell me about something? And when I am quiet, I don't even have to say I don't know him. Just to go mute, I'm expecting to see Jesus' look saying, really? Really, Tim? Did you really say nothing? I know we're not losing our salvation. I know there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But I think we can disappoint our Lord on the journey. And I think, as I reflect on that scene, I know that Jesus is always going to be my friend, but am I always his? Jesus says there's three, three or four things that tell whether we're his friend. One is from James. It says, if you're a friend of the world, you're an enemy to Jesus. It says here, you adulteresses, he's talking to the church, the bride of Christ. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Do we want to be Jesus' enemy? All you have to do is love the world, hang out with the world, follow the world's priorities, and we show we're not Jesus' friend. We're his enemy. Jesus said in John 15, 14, You are my friends if you do what I command. Well, right here, Jesus commands us to testify about him. When I go mute, when the opportunity is presented by an omniscient God, this is the chance, Tim. Say something. And when I go mute, I'm saying I'm not Jesus' friend. 
Because he says, my friends will do what I command. I hate disappointing Jesus. I don't know about you. I hate it. But God will lovingly restore and get me back on track. But those experiences are remembered. Well, we have one other thing that tells us whether we're his friend. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus, while he's telling the story of the goats and the sheep judgment, he says, hey, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to me. And all the people there are going to say, I don't remember seeing you sick, Jesus. Or I, I, I never gave you clothes. I, I didn't give, I, boy, I, I'm stumped. And Jesus says these words. Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these my brothers, you did for me. This is how we show friendship to Jesus. When we want to be Jesus' friend, we're going to be compassionate and show love and grace and care for one another. We're not going to be attacking one another and, and biting each other and devouring one another. That's not being a friend to Jesus. What he said is when we do that to you, or if I do that to you or you, I am doing it to Jesus. It says whatever you didn't do for me, you did, whatever you didn't do for them, you didn't do for me. That was the next part of the verse. See, we have to understand being Jesus' friend is pretty simple. He re, he, but there's a cost. Are you willing to be Jesus' friend knowing that you will be hated? Are you willing to be Jesus' friend if you know you're going to be persecuted and maybe even be killed? Are you willing to be Jesus' friend if it divides your family up? Are you willing to be a friend to Jesus to testify to a Jesus-hating world or to love one another with care and concern? See, is the cost too great to be Jesus' friend? I hope not. To the world it is. See, there's only two choices here. One, you can follow the ways of the world. You can live without peace, hope, joy. You can be an enemy of God and ultimately face his judgment in hell for eternity. Option one. Option two. You can accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. You can have your sins forgiven. You can live a life that's marked for the fruit of the Spirit with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and hope. You can have a life expecting eternal joy with Jesus forever, but it comes at a small price for now. To be hated and persecuted. There is no option three. Option three people want in the church. That is, okay, I'll take Jesus, I'll take, it's like they're picking a menu. I'll take Jesus, I'll take forgiveness of sins, I'll take heaven forever, but I don't want the persecution and the hate. I, I, I'll, I'll just be mute, I'll just be quiet, I'll just, I just don't want that. That isn't an option. There is no option C. There is no cruise ship Jesus. There's only the warship Jesus. The soldiers of Christ Jesus. That's the only one we have. Those are his true disciples. And that's what we are called to be. Salt and light into a world that's extremely dark. Will you be a friend to Jesus today?
Let me say, if you've not trusted in this Jesus, and this is new to you, don't go home without him in your heart as your Lord and Savior. All you need to do is say, hey, I'm a sinner who needs help. I need rescue. Then you put your faith and trust in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of your sins because why? He died on a cross. He rose from the grave and he lives as king eternal both of the universe and our lives. That's what we believe. I could not, I cannot end this message without saying the very thing that Jesus said we must do. Testify of Jesus. If you do that today, you will have joy and forgiveness from God that cannot be matched by this counterfeit world. So I ask once again, despite the cost of following him, is there anyone here that wants to be Jesus' friend? I pray you do. I pray I do. Father, it's a tough thing to live in a hostile world and we're the, probably the softest nation on earth as far as persecution. We don't even really understand what it's like to live in some of these countries where to even name the name of Christ in public might get them killed. We just don't understand. We think that if someone gives us bad service at the restaurant, that's pretty bad. Would you toughen us up to be soldiers of Jesus Christ? To be Jesus' friend by telling others of him. By being kind and gracious to one another. And to obey what Jesus told us to do. I want to be Jesus' friend today. And I pray that this congregation and all who hear me will want to be Jesus' friend as well. In his precious name. Amen. We're dismissed.